welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast. There are film and television adaptations and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm back, baby. Sort of. There's a couple more episodes where I'm not here, but I'm back. I'm Brenna. <laughs> This is true. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops-Te territory within the unceded traditional lands of Sequem-Ulu. And this week, we are welcoming you to Book 5, everybody! Book 5! Yeah, so originally we were going to kick off the new season slash new book with five feet apart that's still coming that's just going to be next week's episode in part because brenna i think people were really missing you when you were absent so i thought this was a good opportunity for us to just have a chat talk about how you're doing and maybe do a bit of a recap because i realize that we've missed a couple of texts that have come out Mm -hmm. this year that maybe people want on their radar uh we've got a new theme song we've got a new bingo board so yeah We're just going to have a quick chat, and then we'll be back to the regular coverage next week. Yeah, and Joe, I just want to say, folks have been really kind in sending nice messages, and you've found some phenomenal guest hosts to fill my shoes uh, over Mm -hmm. the last few weeks, and it's just, I'm really grateful. So I had a bit of a family emergency that took me out of the province, and uh, I kept texting Joe, and I was like, I think I'll be back in like two days. I'll be mm-hmm. able to record mm-hmm. again. And, and then I'd be like, oh, wait, no, things got bad again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was a bit of a chaotic period. Things are much more stable now. And then, of course, I returned back to my home in BC with only about, I don't know, two weeks to put together my tenure and promotion portfolio for work so luckily joe had already covered out basically out until september so that i could uh just keep my head down so i'm super grateful and i other than coming back for of course the debbie reese episode which i could not have missed Yes, I was so happy that that came together and it all worked out. But I was definitely, you know, originally I said, oh, well, we've been letting people know that they should be reading this banned book. And I reached out to Debbie and I was so thankful that she agreed to come on the show. But then I thought, I can't do this without Brenna. We need to make sure that this can happen. And I'm delighted with the way that the episode turned out. And we got a lot of really good positive feedback on it. So yeah, it's one of my favorite book clubs. And I think to... I don't know, Dr. Dries just has such a nuanced perspective on these texts and, and their role. And I think particularly for something as complicated as talking about Sherman Alexie, who has mm-hmm. this huge legacy that is both positive and negative, depending on the reader. I think mm-hmm. it was just really helpful to have company to tease that apart. And oh yeah, gosh, I would yeah. not have wanted to miss that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, Brenna, you teased that you are going up for tenure and promotion. Yeah. And you did this in a very unconventional way. So I wonder, just for the folks who might have an interest or who maybe even access the document that you shared publicly, mm. walk us through your decision to make this complete transparent oh yeah good i wonder if i'm gonna regret it joe but (laughs) (laughs) um so i don't know if you read the kind of research on the process of tenure promotion and for our non-north american listeners like tenure is kind of a weirdly north american concept really it's sort of the university saying like you can stay forever (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um and it's it's a serious commitment to an 
individual in that it's, you know, it's it's job security. It's very right. hard to fire a tenured faculty member. Yes. And it provides a lot of, yeah, I mean, security is really the word. It's why you do it, especially in this time of, you know, austerity and cuts and restructuring and all this stuff. It, it mm-hmm. It's very protective. It's, it's a kind of protection that most people don't get to have in their employed life. So I'm you right. know, really conscious of that, that I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm aiming for a pretty intense privilege here. Sure. But if you read the research on tenure and promotion, both the affective research, like how it feels to go through this process, mm-hmm. um, and also just like the stats on who gets tenure and who doesn't. Yep. As a sector, we have some work to do. Around, Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> around equity and inclusion and the notion of like sort of, you know, what quote unquote counts as scholarship. Mm-hmm. And we often see the point of application for tenure as a space where black scholars and indigenous scholars, queer scholars, disabled scholars kind of fall away from the Mm -hmm. academy. Right. And that has a lot to do with sort of what counts as scholarship and what counts as knowing. But I also think a lot about, like the process is really confidential. And we're always Mm -hmm. told that that confidentiality is like to protect the candidate, right? Sure. Yeah. It's all about you, Brenna. They want to make sure that you feel protected and safeguarded throughout this process. It's not at all about keeping the machinations of a university or a post-secondary institution basically under cloak and dagger. Right? Like, I, I align it with something like the discourse that we tend to have publicly now about talking about salaries, right? Mm-hmm, so for mm-hmm. a long time, it was just the accepted truth that you do not talk about salaries. How gauche. Ooh. Right? Ew. Until eventually people realized, oh, when you keep your salary a secret, there's no transparency. So you have no idea who's earning what. It's how we get to pay women less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, that that body of research around talking about pay as sort of a radical act that forces transparency where none exists. Mm -hmm. I sort of got curious about that from the perspective of tenure and promotion. You know, there are folks who have provided their tenure and promotion portfolios very, very generously. They provide them after the fact, you know, as open resources that people can take a look at. But Mm -hmm. I decided to actually make my portfolio open before it goes through its adjudication process. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I don't think we talk about process and failure enough in universities. These are weird jobs where you fail a lot, but you have to fail entirely in secret because if Mm -hmm. anybody else finds out that you failed, it's like a big deal, right? Oh my God, what if I lose my job because I failed? Oh wait, you mean failure is part of the job? People just don't (laughs) talk about it. Got it, got it, got it. Totally. And like, I, I know so many folks who went up for tenure and promotion, which by the way, like preparing this dossier... It was, I mean, I got really crunched into in my time for yes. because of my family situation. Mm-hmm. But like, I did start it before I had to leave. But like, right. the the lion's share of the work had to happen in a really condensed period of time. And it was basically like, I was not present with my family for two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Like, Devin would come in and like, put food on my desk and like, make sure my water bottle was full and then disappear. It's hours and hours and hours and hours of work. Mm-hmm which I don't think you realize until you're in the process. So I think talking more about the process can be helpful for people. Um, But I also think like, 
I know so many people who never even told anyone they were going up for tenure because oh. they were so, they didn't right. want to have to disclose if they didn't get it, right? And of course, the reality yeah. is, like, stakes are really high. Like, you either get tenure or you get fired. Like, those are the mm -hmm. only two outcomes of going up for tenure and promotion. So, well, yeah, because if you don't get tenure, you're not going to stay at that institution because no. they basically told you, no, you're not good enough. Yeah, no, exactly. And, you know, it, it terminates the contract that you're on. And so, okay, but like, see ya, have a nice life. Mm -hmm. So the stakes are super high, right? And I think that that often forces people to feel like they need to uh, keep things to themselves because it's scary. But yeah, I, I, I want to really push against a lot of the conventions that we lean into in the academy because I think a lot of them are really harmful. And I think the secrecy around tenure and promotion is one of the things that it makes people feel really insecure. It makes them mm -hmm. feel like they're not sure if they should go up because how do you even know if, you're, if you've done enough work to go up? And right. I don't think open fixes everything and openness as a philosophy has its own mm -hmm. inequalities and inequities that have sure. to be fought against too, but... I do think in this case, transparency is better. So yeah, I put my whole portfolio up online with the exception of anything like anybody's words I didn't own, anybody else's right. words are, are not there. But otherwise, yeah, anybody who's thinking about this or just curious about the process can go and take a look at it. Mm -hmm. It's also weird because I have a weird job. Like I have a job that yeah. is not traditionally a tenure track job. And so part of the stress is just like... <laughs> How do you document yes. the fact that you're an outlier? Yeah. And like documenting impact is really difficult in instructional support because I don't have student reviews, right? Mm -hmm. I sometimes hear from faculty who do teach that something I've suggested has worked well in their <laughs> class, but like you can't document that, right? So Well, and it's weirdly secondhand too, right? Yes. Where it's like that thing you advised me and worked with me on ended up working and I got really good student reviews <laughs> as a result. You're like, cool. Where does the trickle down help me out? Please. Exactly. <laughs> and so part of it I think is um I hope to see more instructional support jobs that move to tenure track i don't know how mm -hmm. likely it is but nah. like there are a handful of models out there online if you google for you know if you want to find somebody's history dossier you can find it but like sure the, there is nothing for people no. who work in sort of non-traditional academic careers so that was another reason why i wanted to make it open right look at you yeah. blazing yeah. a path being a pioneer <laughs> Yeah, in our March episode is just Brenna sobbing because it turns out this was a horrible mistake. <laughs> Brenna needed to go on another sabbatical. Uh, reasons undisclosed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if I disappear sometime around the spring, y'all know what happened. <laughs> My God. Uh, I mean, one of the fun things for me, bringing it kind of back to our show, is mm -hmm. the fact that you managed to work in the fact that you do this podcast as part of your tenure yeah, I did. So we do these annual professional activity reports. And for the first two years, I didn't include Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star because I think of it as like my fun hobby. Sure. But I've, I've sort of realized in the last year or so that you and I do a lot of mm -hmm. scholarship on this show. I'm putting, I have air quotes around that. But what I mean yeah. is like, when we talk about texts, it's often informed by, you know, different kind of scholarly perspectives that we're drawing mm -hmm. on, things that we read in our own academic careers. And I think that that is actually a really interesting model for thinking about how we like mobilize research. Mm -hmm. And I hope nobody listens to this show and is like, oh, that was just like a really long lecture because that's not what we're going <laughs> for. 
<laughs> Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> but I do think there's an extent to which the way we talk about text is informed by both of our backgrounds as academics. Mm-hmm. Like it can't not be. Yeah. And also, I've just learned so much about the genre of podcasting from making this show, from our audience, from the way people respond or don't respond um, Mm -hmm. to different concepts and different ideas we we discuss. And I think the main thing that I really learned from making this show is about community accountability, right? And Mm. you and I have talked about this before, about when we've messed up or used language that we regret later and, and somebody writes in and lets us know about it. Mm-hmm. that's really been a good experience in my life as like a public scholar, quote unquote. Yes. Again, there's so many air quotes happening right now mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I'm not afraid of public accountability. Like I might be no. if I didn't have this experience because uh... what I've learned from our audience is that for the most part, everybody really just wants us to make the best show that we can. Right. And when they write in to suggest something or to ask for a correction, they're not doing it as like a ah, gotcha. They're doing it because they want the show to be as good as it can be. And right. that spirit of generosity, I think, has really, I don't know, it's its made me a more confident, it's made me more confident when I, when mm-hmm. I talk about these things in public. Like I'm less scared of making a mistake because I know that you can apologize and not die. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that that's a really interesting perspective. Like we've been doing this now for four and a half years. Like this mm-hmm. is... You called it a hobby, and I'm not inclined to go against you, but part of this is that it is a significant part of our lives. It's a significant chunk of our lives, and we do try to do the best show possible. Like, some of these episodes are a little bit silly. Some of these texts are a little bit light and fluffy, but I think one of the things when I look back on the show that I really value, you know, apart from the obvious of, like, getting to connect with an audience, getting to spend time regularly with you, is... It's changed my perception of the value of certain kinds of texts. Like, Mm. it's really informed the way that I look at the relationship that pop culture has with teen girls in particular. Yes. And how we undervalue them, how we dismiss them, how we don't treat them like valuable consumers, even though we desperately want their money. Yeah. (laughs) And I think, yeah, to me, that is part of scholarship. And I think there's a huge worth to overall, like, pulling it back podcasting in general like Mm -hmm. some shows are much better done than others i'm not going to suggest ours is the best one out there but i do think that we are contributing to an important discussion about the cultural worth of different types of texts Mm -hmm. and i'm trying to do my own kind of tenure and promotion in a different kind of way like our show is on rotten tomatoes and Every time we talk about a text, I add it up there. And that's mm-hmm. part of my professional film criticism career. Mm-hmm. So, like, I basically am trying to leverage the value of this show to get into things like the Toronto Film Critics Association, which has passed me over for multiple years because Ew. they say that I only talk about horror movies and that I haven't <gasps> accomplished enough. This is anecdotally speaking. But, you know, part of this is like, oh, shall I point you to the 250 episodes where I talk about YA in all sorts of different cultural contexts. So this is me sort of putting it on blast, but also, you know, that's an association that has no transparency Mm -hmm. where you can't apply to it. You can't argue for yourself. You can only hope that people in mysterious dark rooms will raise your name and support the idea that you were doing valuable work. And thus far, 
the messaging that I've received is that the work I'm doing is not valuable enough to join their ranks. And that's upsetting uh, to me. So, Well, it is because, you know, you, you get at this idea of like cultural worth and value. And it's like between the work you do in horror and the work you do in YA, like that's, I guess, to some people, that's like quote unquote genre as if that's mm-hmm. like a really bad thing. But to, yeah. to me, that's like, that's a huge piece of the like pie of things people actually watch that's like Mm -hmm. that's like that a lot of that pie is covered between ya content and horror content right like i I, i'm sort of fascinated particularly in this era where we have all these media like podcasts like blogging we have Mm -hmm. all of these ways to disseminate knowledge yeah and bring more people into the conversation and there's still these bodies out there that want to be like but not that kind of conversation (laughs) Mm -hmm. not podcast not ya Mm, no yeah it's uh it's interesting it's frustrating and i think like you're suggesting with your tenure application it's a conversation worth having about transparency Mm -hmm. and who and what we truly value the older I get, the more skeptical I am of the concept of things being confidential. Mm-hmm. And especially in the case, like, for my tenure and promotion portfolio, or for somebody who is a who is a professional critic like you are, Joe, like, your work is out in the public domain. Like, people can mm-hmm. adjudicate it themselves. 100%. And, you know, for me, that was part of putting the portfolio together is all this stuff is available openly anyway. I'm really just collecting it up. I think that more and more the sort of shadowy bodies who like to make these decisions, I think they are losing that power, whether they Mm -hmm. want to recognize it or not. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I keep hoping for like a more significant change in the ruling guard. And then someone new gets in and you're just like, oh, you're the same. (laughs) You're new, but you're the same. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, things are cyclical. Let's not pretend that we learn a lesson and then get better, but... Not to get all cynical and Debbie Downer on this, I think part of this is that we need to look for opportunities to strive to improve Mm -hmm. ourselves. And maybe that includes things like adjudication bodies or tenure and promotion committees and so on. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of one of those like, well, if you have an opportunity, then try to embrace it. And if you don't have an opportunity, then keep an eye out for opportunities to do so in the future. I don't think being more open is a bad thing. No, I agree. And my general career mantra is that if it makes me scared, it's probably the right thing. Um, And so, you know, I just kind of try to keep that in mind. And I think that that's true in a lot of places, right? When things scare us, it's often because we're going against the conventions and Mm -hmm. a lot of the conventions are bad. So, (laughs) (laughs) Or outdated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Okay, well, thank you for being open and candid about your process and also a glimpse into a little bit of what your summer has been like. It sounds <laughs> it's been a so little bad. stressful. <laughs> <laughs> it's been so, oh, it's been so bad. <laughs> <laughs> but we're laughing about it, so it's funny, right? It's September now, it's over. <laughs> there we go, there we go. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's maybe transition and do a little bit of a catch up slash forecast of what the YA adaptation landscape is looking like. So I've collected some titles of things that we have either missed or that we're looking forward to. We're just going to kind of go down the line. And if we have anything that we want to say about them, we can. And if not, we'll move on. Okay, sounds good. Okay. Uh, I'm going to direct people to three texts that are already publicly available. 
The first one is Along for the Ride by Sarah Dessen. Have you heard of this one? I have not. I know Sarah Dessen's name really well, and she's one of those names where it's like, I probably should have read her, right? Mm -hmm. She's big in sort of the uh, the romance side of YA, yes. kissy YA, as I sometimes mm -hmm. refer to it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not familiar with her work at all. So this one totally surprised me. Okay, yeah. So this one is available on Netflix, uh, apparently, as of May. So we're we're quite late to this game. But folks, if you haven't heard of this text, it's the summer before college, Auden meets the mysterious Eli, a fellow insomniac. While the seaside town of Colby sleeps, the two embark on a nightly quest to help Auden experience the fun, carefree teen life she never knew she wanted. So yes, very, very romantic. I've gathered that people were excited for this principally because Dessen has made a name for herself mm -hmm. and people were like, ooh, maybe this will be the start of more adaptations of her work. Well, there, I mean, there's a lot of books, right? Like if Netflix decides that Sarah Dessen is a bankable name, mm -hmm. they've got a movie every summer until the sun right? explodes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a nice transition into the second text, because this is the first... About the sun exploding. Yes, indeed. <laughs> the world is ending. Run for cover, folks. <laughs> oh, boy. No, so this is uh, the first of apparently four adaptations of the works of Jennifer E. Smith. The first one that is out right now is Hello, Goodbye, and Everything in Between, which has been shortened uh, for the purposes of, I'm sure, finding it and SEO. <laughs> but In that horrible Netflix search that is just so bad for reasons right? that aren't clear to me. <laughs> yeah, so instead we end up with the generic title, Hello, Goodbye. Mm -hmm. And this is starring Jordan Fisher, who you and I both like and know from the second and third, I think, to all the boys I've loved before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this one's on Netflix. It's about a pair of high school sweethearts who recount their time together on the night before they head off to college. Okay, so I haven't watched this yet, but I saw a comparison that um found a little bit stunning. And now mm -hmm. I want to check it out to see if it's even remotely true. But now, okay, there's a series of movies. It's like, called like the night before, the day okay. after. I don't, they're like, they're, I feel like they're European films hmm. that are like Oh, romances. like Before Sunrise. That's the one. Before Sunset, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi, yeah. I have heard this film compared to that series. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, yeah because people love that film series. Right? So I haven't checked it out, but that's the comparison I've heard, which makes me want to check it out. Okay, yeah. I mean, I'm kind of game for this because you and I both really enjoy Jordan Fisher. Mm. Very watchable. Very watchable. Very cute, yes. Mm -hmm. I didn't hear a lot about this, so I don't know if that just means, you know, I don't always hear a lot about YA properties. It depends on the circles you're traveling in. But I gathered that people were, again, very excited that Jennifer E. Smith has adaptations in the works. And yeah, you know, this is one of four, so... Apparently, we should be excited. Yeah, yeah. I'm definitely going to check it out because, as you say, Jordan Fisher, very watchable. Mm-hmm. So the third one that is already available if folks want to go and seek it out is Paper Girls by Brian K. Vaughn, which has been adapted into an eight-episode series on Amazon. We've pushed back our coverage of this like three times, and I know that's entirely mm -hmm. my fault, but I can't wait to get to it. 
<laughs> yeah, this is one where we're like, the other two, we thought, okay, you know, we're going to let people know about it because they might be interested. Paper Girls is coming, folks. Like, we yes. can't not cover this because we yep. have been excited about this for a very long time. Yes. Yeah. So if you're not familiar, this is a comic series by Brian K. Vaughn. And it's, I don't know, it's sort of science fiction-y, but mm -hmm. it's also sort of teen girl best friend story. And yes. it's a time travel-y kind of narrative. It's It's got a lot going on. Um, but I think what a lot of people love about it is that it is nostalgic. Mm-hmm. The art is particularly cool, and it bounces back between, I think, the late 80s and 2019. So it's, um, yes. yeah, I think it, I'm so excited. I can't wait to see this series. People mm. I really like have watched it and told me I should really like it. Like, I will yes. really like it. So that makes me even more excited. <laughs> yeah, so I actually have seen the whole series because I did, like, a thing with Amazon on this and uh, will correlate with all of those reviews. Yes, it is <laughs> excellent. It's interesting. I really hope it gets a second season. I'm afraid that people aren't talking about this enough, especially folks who do like a touch of sci-fi in their YA. It's really good. I'm excited to have the conversation with you. You know, this prompts a question, which we definitely don't have time for today, but something that I'd love to talk about with you more at some point is like, how do audiences influence what gets made or can they mm. and i'm asking this because you know neil gaiman very famously went on twitter and was like i know you're all loving sandman there's no guarantee we're getting another season and people were like what mm -hmm. everybody's watching it it's critically acclaimed everyone's loving it and he's like yeah we don't know how these decisions are made and there's really nothing like there's no promises and i'm just yeah. like if you can't guarantee a second season of that series what can you guarantee a second season of anything mm -hmm. I mean, coming back to our conversation about disclosure and transparency, yeah. it's one of the biggest challenges that people are finding in the age of streaming, which is that most streamers will not release their metrics. So a lot of those decisions are happening behind closed doors. And the scary thing, too, is that sometimes it doesn't even matter if a thing is popular after the fact, like if it gains yeah. traction and picks up steam down the road. Those first two weeks that a show comes out are apparently super critical. Which, you know, used to be the whole point of streamers versus network, right? Like the whole point of streamers versus network was like space to build an audience. Mm -hmm. And I think of things that were cult hits at first and then grew, like mm -hmm. Orange is the New Black, for example. Like that's oh, sure. a show that took a, quite a long time to get like, and then it got bad, unfortunately. But, mm. you know, I, I just feel like we've stopped giving the There's space. no room to breathe. No. Yeah. And that used to be the benefit of a streamer over network. I'm not really sure what the benefit of a streamer over network is now. Uh, we get to binge most often, but not yeah, even true not even always. all the time anymore. No. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> well, speaking of, so the next one is, I mean, folks, I'm just going to acknowledge this is what we're covering. So mm -hmm. we are going to be talking about Vampire Academy, which is the adaptation of Rochelle Mead's six volume series. So uh, there is a TV show that's coming to Peacock. It's basically coming out this week if you're uh -huh. listening to this episode when it drops and of course there's also a film from 2014 so uh yeah we'll just leave it at that because we have a lot more to say about vampire academy to come and if we start now i won't stop so fair fair fair, fair. yeah <laughs> okay let's talk about things that we're a little bit more excited for brenna yeah! so 
This is exciting for me because I'm about to go into TIFF and this is premiering here, but we have the film adaptation of Angie Thomas's On the Come Up. Are you seeing it at TIFF, Joe? I have a ticket <gasps> and hopefully, I mean, by the time this episode drops, I will have either seen it or missed it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited for this. I feel like nobody knows this is coming though. No, I don't feel like there's been any discourse Mm -mm. about it at all, which is so strange to me because Angie Thomas is beloved um, Mm -hmm. and, you know, she has a huge social media reach. But even like I follow her and I felt like I didn't know this was going to be at TIFF. Yeah, it's a little bit weird. And folks, we're not going to pretend like all of you can travel to Toronto and watch this movie. I can't even do that. No. So you should keep the date of September 23rd on your radar because that's when it will be coming to Paramount+. Plus. And this is directed by Sanan Lathan. And I always say her name wrong. I apologize. But she's an actress and this is her directorial debut. So I'm actually really, really excited for this. I have been wondering if some of the relative silence compared to something like The Hate You Give has to do with the mm-hmm. fact that uh angie thomas did not have a good time working with disney on the hate you give and so this is not with disney i believe um and so i'm I'm wondering if that has anything to do like all that backstage shenaniganery has anything to do with the relative quiet on this one Mm, yeah it very possibly could but we'll cover it in the future i'm sure because i'm eager to see it yes yeah i'm very excited too Okay, so continuing on, we have My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is a novel by Grady Hendrix, and it is being adapted for Amazon. So this is a film that's coming out on September 30th. So I like Grady Hendrix, actually. I haven't read My Best Friend's Exorcism, but I really love that one that he wrote that's set in the Ikea, and the book itself is shaped like an Ikea catalog. Yes, Horror Store, I believe. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I really love that. So I am, I am eager to find out what happens with the adaptation. One of the things that Grady Hendrix does better than probably any other writer on the market is, mm-hmm. frankly, book design. He knows how to package that stuff up, yes. And he seems to get publishers who play ball, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. And My Best Friend's Exorcism has this amazing, like, Sweet Valley High-esque cover yes. mm-hmm. that I love so much. But no, I have never read it. Have you read it, Joe? It's very you. I have. We've talked about it on way oh, back in the yeah, day. when we used to do homework. Yeah, it was one of the homework pieces. I don't like it. I don't mm. actually care for most Grady Hendrix books that I've read. I've read about three of them. And I find that he's almost a version of Stephen King to me where I like his ideas and I don't enjoy the execution. I remember you were very disappointed by the ending of this one. Am I right? Yeah, not even the ending, like basically the back half of the book. It starts well, and I really like the friendship between the two girls. And then one of them gets possessed, and the rest of the book, they're basically separated because one has gone evil and the other one's trying to investigate. And I just find that it's so tropey and it's not doing anything interesting or new. I can reveal I have seen the movie, and from what I remember of the book, it's a faithful adaptation for the most part, which also means I did not super oh no oh sorry grady i know you're listening (laughs) right (laughs) if folks want to hear more about that uh maybe keep an ear out on horror queers in the future (laughs) i do think that hendrix is savvy with with design book design Mm -hmm. um 
sells him a lot of copies because oh, I sure. know as like his books are imminently giftable. Like yes. I gave my best friend's exorcism to people who I knew liked kind of campy horror and also people who right. I knew loved Sweet Valley. Like cuz mm-hmm. it's it's the design is so kind of catching oh, for both perfect. audiences and yes. so yeah, I think that I think that that is no small part of his success and that's not a critique by the way. I wish more mm-hmm. publishers took more risks with book design. Or recognize the fact that we pretend like we don't buy things based on the covers and the marketing, and we 100% do. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how, do you, how do you get our attention in the first place? Like, you do need to sell it to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I judge most books by their covers, to be perfectly honest. Sure. Yeah. Somebody had to make it. Why didn't you do a better job? <laughs> Okay, let's move into one that I'm actually pretty sure I'm going to love because it is The Midnight Club, which is a book by Christopher Pike, which is being adapted into a new Mike Flanagan Netflix series. And Brenna, the name Mike Flanagan might not mean anything to you, but for people in horror, this is a huge deal. Joe, I'm genuinely shocked that this isn't on our schedule already. When I saw this on your list of preview texts, I was like, why isn't he making me do this? I'm very confused. <laughs> you love Christopher Pike. You must be doing it on Horror Quiz. Are you doing it on Horror Quiz? I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> But yes, uh, so this will be dropping on October 7th. It's an interesting adaptation because the book, The Midnight Club, is about a group of sick teenagers who gather at midnight to tell each other scary stories, and you get to hear a sense of what all the stories are. So it's almost like an anthology, and apparently what Flanagan and his creative team are doing is... Instead of doing the stories from the book, they're going to do mini adaptations of other Christopher Pike books. Oh my god, Joe, did they make this for you? Mm-hmm. So it's basically <laughs> they're secretly adapting four or five Christopher Pike stories, including some of his most famous works. I, wow. Yeah. This is like if they were like a new university sitcom by the creators of parks and recreation we'd be mm-hmm. like did they make this for brenna this is like right? the ultimate joe story it's tailor made for me <laughs> that's awesome so i've got a couple more i realized i was trying to put these in order and then i didn't realize i had one out of order so i apologize um we're gonna jump back up to september 23rd so apparently a good day for YA adaptations and there's a film version of Catherine called Birdie, which the novel is by Karen Cushman, but it's going to be turned into a movie. And this one's also debuting at TIFF, but it'll be out to the public in theaters on the 23rd of September. So I don't know anything about this. What is it? So I will confess, I didn't know anything about this one either until we were directed to it by listener Sam, who has his own podcast called Is It Camp? I had the pleasure of talking about Labyrinth on his uh, podcast last month. That's a very fun podcast, by the way. It is a very fun podcast. Yeah. So this is apparently about a 14-year-old girl in medieval England who is navigating through life and avoiding potential suitors her father has in mind. And this looks gleefully madcapped. Um, If I'm not mistaken, the actress who is playing this 14-year-old girl, she was the precocious girl in, I think, the final season of Game of Thrones, like the kind of warrior queen who's like very, very young and opinionated. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, I don't know. I've watched the trailer for this. It looks fun. So, yeah. Uh, It's another one to keep an eye out for. 
Cool. I love it. A little bit different than usual YA fare. So that sounds great. True. Very true. Yeah, it's like period, but with a modern sensibility, I think. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I've got one that's a secret, Britta, because <laughs> you don't know about this, because I only realized as we were recording that I had missed one, which is high school. It's the worst title I've ever heard, but you can't do anything about that when it's also the title of Tegan and Sarah's autobiography. They're making a movie? It's a TV show. Ah! This one's a little co- a little bit confusing. It's coming to something called Amazon Freevee, which I hmm. gathered is what IMDb TV used to be. I don't know how accessible this is, but uh, I've also seen a couple of episodes of this, and it's basically modeled on the life of Canadian sisters and singers who are both uh, identified as queer. And it's about them coming of age, living in Calgary in the 90s and working through their coming out, living with a sort of absent or distant mother. It's interesting. It's a very subdued, like it is a slice of life narrative, but I've enjoyed what I've seen. Cool. Is it Canadian? Like, is it produced by Canadians or is it not? I only ask because very subtle slice of life drama is like something we really like to do because it doesn't cost money. <laughs> it was giving big Degrassi vibes, but like even more realistic than that, like not sensational. These episodes okay. are small and contained. So I think it's actually going to be a very hard sell to people who are mm. going to be looking at things like Gossip Girl or more ostentatious fare because right. this is like... An episode is about, you know, them dealing with their mom not wanting them to go to a concert. Oh, okay. So it's real life. (laughs) It's real, real life. Yeah. Okay. So this is out on October 14th on, yes, Amazon Freebie. All right. Whatever that is, I guess we'll be finding out. Uh Uh-huh. And then the final (laughs) one to get on people's radars, I don't know if this will be out this year. It is premiering at TIFF, which means (gasps) the film is already done, but I didn't even realize it was playing until I saw it after the fact after i had purchased some damn tickets but uh yeah there's a film version of aristotle and dante (gasps) discover the secrets of the universe and it'll be out presumably in the future but no specific release date oh i i love well those two books but i love that book so much Mm -hmm. i oh who's directing it so this is directed by a first-time director, oh. H. Alberto, and um, I don't know much about her. It says on the TIFF webpage that she was born in Miami. She's a writer, producer, and director with multiple short films to her credit, but this oh. is her feature debut. All right. Well, I'm very excited. Very, mm-hmm. very excited. Yeah. Okay, Cool. So, folks, that's kind of an unofficial preview of things that we may be covering in the future or things that we're just excited about. And uh, if we've missed anything or if there's something that you're excited for, we would love to hear from you. Yes. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can find us on the Twitters at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. For longer form stuff, it's HKHSPod at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And speaking of longer form stuff, uh, we'll let you know now that the October book club is going to be The Witches by Roald mm-hmm. Dahl. Um, yes. Speaking of problematic faves. <laughs> <laughs> 
automatic fave to the max, but that'll be a really good conversation. And I suspect a lot of you have already read The Witches, so please do get in touch with us. Um, mm-hmm. Joe, if they want to find you to get your secret TIFF reviews, uh, where do they find you? <laughs> Not so secret. They're all publicly available. But yes, uh, you could reach me at B, still my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Book five is going to be the best book yet. Yes, uh, we say that as we head into cichlid territory. We're five <laughs> feet apart next week, which is, um, it's a choice. <laughs> Two more episodes with fabulous guest stars. Thank you all so much for jumping in and taking my place while I've been away. And uh, and then I'll be back to talk about mm-hmm. Vampire Academy, apparently. Yeah, Vampire Academy. <laughs> Until next time, I'll see you on the page. And I'll see you on the screen.